All right, I'm going to ask you to stand with me as I read our passage this morning from Matthew 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star in, the, in its rising, and have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people, and asked them where the Messiah could be, would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means among the rulers of Judah, at least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me that I too can go with him. Go worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was, the star that they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with his Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented their gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. This is God's word. You can have a seat. Well, this is a really familiar story, um, and it gives us two ways of responding to Jesus. So we're going to actually take two weeks to look at it. We're going to look today at uh, the Magi and their story, and then next week we're going to look at Herod and his story. Today we're going to look at three questions that emerge from this text. Who is invited to Jesus? How are we invited to respond to Jesus? And then third, how can we respond to Jesus? So who is invited to Jesus? How are we invited to Jesus? And then third, how can we respond to this invitation to Jesus? So the first thing I want us to look at is who is invited to Jesus. Now in the first uh, verse of this passage, we meet two different characters, like I said. We see King Herod, and he's the king of Judah, or we might think of him as the king of the Jews, and we'll look at his story next week. But then we're also introduced to the wise men or the magi. Now, I don't know what mental picture comes to your mind when you think of magi or wise men, but for me, it's it's probably something like this. Uh, Really cute kids wearing paper crowns and uh, robes that resemble English kings or something like that. Uh, Like very cute and positive connotations towards this, this word and this idea, like a Christmas pageant type of idea. But everywhere else in the New Testament that this word is used, magi, it actually has very negative connotations. The word is used in several other places. Because you can translate it as sorcerer or magician or false prophet. It's actually not a positive word in the rest of the New Testament. So again, we're we're reminding ourselves that this book is written uh, for us, but not to us. It's written to the first century Jewish audience. So if you're coming to this as a first century Jewish person, and you're reading this text, and you're introduced to these two different characters, who do you think is going to be the one who's invited to celebrate the birth of the new Jewish king? You wouldn't think it would be these magi. You would think it would be the king of the Jews. And there's this ironic play here, because of course, if there's a king of the Jews, and there's a new king of the Jews that's born, you probably think that would be happening in their family, in their household, and of course the king would know about it. But instead, that's not what we see in the story. It's these foreign sorcerers who come and proclaim the birth of this new king. And we're reminded again to look back at the genealogy that we looked at last week in Matthew 1, 
where we looked specifically at these five women that are in the genealogy. And we saw not only are they women, which at that time was very, very unique in the genealogy, not only do some of them have like some uh, questionable moral character, but also they're all outsiders ethnically to the family of God. And then we said we also have to look at the last chapter of Matthew, the genealogy that happens there, where Jesus says to his followers, go and make disciples of all nations. This idea that God is bringing outsiders into his family, that he's always been about that, and that he wants to do that through this person, Jesus. And so he mentions outsiders in his family genealogy. He mentions outsiders at the very end when he says, who are we taking the good news to? And he also does it in this story, where he gives these even false prophets, the great honor of announcing the birth of his son, Jesus, into the world. Now, we talked about this already, but I want to continue to harp on it because Matthew does as well. So what does this mean for us today, that this is the, th- these are the, p- the people excuse me, that carry the good news of Jesus? One commentator put it this way. He says, Jesus comes for us, but he doesn't belong to us. He belongs to the world. Jesus comes for us, but he doesn't belong to us, he belongs to the world. This is a really important thing for us to remember as we continue to read the story of Jesus, especially for those of us who uh, have been around for a long time, maybe following Jesus for a long time, that there's always this slow uh, domestication that can happen of Jesus, where we make him be more and more like us, and more and more like us as a group. But this this, uh, story challenges that, That instead, we need to remind ourselves all the time that he did come for us, but he doesn't belong to us. He's always going to invite the outsider in. And if that's you today, maybe you're a person who feels like you're on the outside of this community, or you're on the outside of Jesus. Um, Or maybe you just think, like, I have views, even though I'm part of this community, I have views and ideas that probably wouldn't be welcome here. They're different than most other people. I just want to encourage you with this passage that God invites you in, all of you in. And I ask you, as the pastor of this church, to please be part of of allowing us, helping us by sharing your views, sharing your personality, by coming in for us to take this into practice, that we invite people outside in. So that's the the first part. That's who's invited to Jesus is these, uh, it's kind of a a scandalous idea, these sorcerers that come from a a far nation. So the second question is, how does God invite people into his family? So not who does he invite, but how does he invite them in? So for these these magi, he doesn't send them an email. He doesn't mail them the first chapter of Matthew, the genealogy, and say like, hey, just read this, you'll get it, you know? He doesn't preach them a sermon or send them a fiery prophet. They're astrologers. That's their job. They spend time looking at the stars in the sky. And so what he does is he sends a star. He speaks to them in a way that they can understand. And this reveals something of the nature of God to us, that he is the God of the whole world, the Bible says, and that's what Matthew is trying to say to us too. It's not just the God of the Jewish people, but he's the God of the whole world, and he always wants to invite us in, invite us into relationship with him, and so he's always reaching out. The first movement of God is out towards us, and he's speaking into our world through the things that we spend our time gazing at. I don't know that anyone in here is an astrologer, or spends a lot of time looking at the stars. In Vancouver, it's quite hard to see. Um, but whatever you spend your time looking at, God actually wants to speak to you and through that into our lives. There's no people that God doesn't want to reach, and there's no culture that's too far for God to speak into and invite us into his family. 
One of my favorite stories about this comes from a guy named Don Richardson. He's actually a Canadian missionary. He went to Prairie Bible College. Shout out to, to Prairie Bible College in Two Hills, Alberta. And uh, he felt called to go to uh, this, this tribe of people in uh, New Guinea called the Sawi tribe. They had never met a white person as far as he, he knew, like a foreigner. They uh, had never met anyone who spoke English. And so he felt called to go to this tribe of people and learn their language and their culture to introduce them to Jesus. But the problem was that, or the difficulty that he ran into is that one of the biggest values that this tribe had was betrayal and deceit. So they would celebrate it when somebody would go and make friends with someone from uh, another tribe, and over a really long period of time they would become friends, they would gain their trust, and then they would betray them. And then often they would kill them and eat them because they were cannibals. So all of their like, myth- mythological stories, all of their cultural heroes were these kinds of people who would, who would be- make friends with someone, they would betray them, murder them, and kill them. This is what they thought was positive. And so when, when Richardson told them the story about Jesus, they always thought Judas was the hero. So they were like, oh, this guy, like, he's so smart, tricked this Jesus. And Jesus was like the dummy in the story. And so Richardson, he actually, he was having a really, really difficult time, and he was getting really frustrated, and actually eventually he decided to leave because he was, um, he was so frustrated with this process where he just felt like he couldn't get across to them. And he was actually starting to get angry at these people themselves. He was like, this tribe is just beyond any possibility of God saving them. And it also was quite a violent and volatile place. You can imagine if every person is you're like, are you going to eat me? Like, are you my friend or am I dinner? Uh, you don't really have a clue. With every relationship that you have, excuse me, that you have, it's a really volatile and violent place. So he and his family actually decided to leave after a while. But the tribes really wanted him to stay. Uh, they really liked having him there. So they came together in this ceremony and they said, like, look, enough is enough. Let's settle this once and for all so we can keep this, this group here. But of course, how could you do that if uh, how could you trust any other group of people if your cultural is, is based on betrayal? You'd be like, I want to each, I mean, make peace with you. You would just never really know if anyone was telling the truth to you. So what they did is they got together and they had this ceremony called the Peace Child, where each tribe took their firstborn son of their chief and gave it to the other tribe. A child would go over and they would exchange children together. And the idea was as long as you keep this child alive, and we keep your child alive, there will be peace between us, and we can have trust with each other. And in fact, that's what happened. They kept the peace. And Richardson was amazed by this process, and he, he learned how to start sharing the story of Jesus in and through this idea. He would talk about Jesus as the peace child, that God loved the world, so he gave his only son to us to bring us peace. And even though we killed his son, we broke trust with him, God has raised him from the dead and offered us peace once again. And this way of talking about Jesus was revolutionary for them and helped them to understand the person of who Jesus is. And not only did many of them come to faith in Jesus, but also it created a culture of peace in in amongst their villages. And I love this story because it reminds me that no one is too far from God. And he wants to speak to us always in a language that we can understand. God speaks to you where you're at. If you're part of the Sawi tribe, God can speak to you through your broken culture of betrayal. If you're Moses in the Bible, God can speak to you through a burning bush. If you're a heathen astronomer, God can invite you to Jesus through a star. He's the God of the world who's always moving to invite us to Jesus. 
So what might that look like today? You know, none of us are from the Sawi tribe. Like I said, I'm not sure that any of us are astronomers. So what might it look like today? What might be the rising stars in our world? Well, I think it's something unexplicable or inexplicable, sorry, or unordinary in our lives. There are things that we see that break the mold. And here's the paradox with God. He's always speaking into our world and into our lives in a language that we can understand, but he's always doing it in a way that is slightly out of place. So for the astronomers, he gives them a star, but it's a rising star. It's something that stands out. It's something that breaks the mold for them. And here's what some, that might look like today for us. Uh, Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, suggests a couple options, and so I'm just going to steal from him. The first is an inexplicable person. This is a person who messes with your idea of the good life or what it means to be a Christian. A person who comes into your life, speaks your language, but also shakes up your idea of what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, I'll give you an example of this. I have a good friend, and uh, for most of his life, he experienced what he would call um, fake Christianity, or, or what I sometimes call churchianity, just the culture of being in and around church, but not following uh, Jesus. And so he uh, left and walked away, but we're good friends, and so I was one of those people in his life that he was becoming open to uh, a faith once again. And during early on in the pandemic, he came to one of our online gatherings, and uh, I was really encouraged. I didn't know he was coming. I just saw his name pop up on the thing. And then, uh, so the gathering finished, and I preached, and then I called him afterwards, and I was like, hey, you know, like, this is a big step. I was really excited. I was like, I thought the sermon went pretty well. I was like, maybe, you know, I knocked it out of the park. Maybe, I don't know what happened in your life. So I called him, and I was talking to him. I was like, hey, what did you think? And uh, I was kind of, like, nudging towards, like, you know, the sermon was pretty, pretty good, right? And he's like, yeah, it was all right. Um, but then he said, we, use, we sometimes have this thing called gospel storytellers, where we just let people tell their stories. We ask them a few questions, and we pray for him, them. And during that Sunday, someone had shared and started just openly sharing and actually started crying on, on uh, the call. And then we took time to pray for them. And he said, that was just, like, so meaningful for me. He's like, all my life, I've just been around kind of fake veneer Christianity where, where everybody would just try to hit the wrap it up button. And that ministered to me in ways that you you know, your sermon didn't, basically. <laughs> but is this inexplicable person is taking this mold that he had of what it meant to follow Jesus and breaking it. And he said these words to me, if I ever come to a church, I'm not, I don't know if I'm ready, I would look, like to come to a church like this, where people can be open and honest and vulnerable. An inexplicable person. The second thing is an inexplicable thought. This is a breaking down of our mental paradigms and the way that we view the world. I mentioned this last week when I talked about the song Imagine from John, Legend, or John Lennon. And uh, in the song, he talks about all these barriers that he hopes will break down. You know, no nationalities, no possessions, no religion. And then the world will live at peace. That's the great hope. And while I hold that same hope with him, like I said, over the pandemic, I think we've seen that that world is not, like that idea has not taken shape. And we're maybe a more polarized place than ever. And I quoted the New York Times saying uh, that they thought the people who are singing that song now to kind of bring peace and hope to the world was a naive statement. And uh, this is uh, the breaking down of a paradigm, at least I know for me. For most of my life, this story has run unhindered in my world. This hope that if we just have more education and if we break down these stereotypes between us, then we'll all be able to like, be united and kumbaya together. And I want to be united in Kumbaya together, but it just doesn't seem like that world is taking shape. And I know for me and several of my friends, we're in that moment where we have this inexplicable thought, what will? What will do that? And I know for some of you too, you have that with your own faith. 
you maybe grew up in the church, you've got the faith of, you know, you were taught in Sunday school these different stories in ways that were really helpful to a five-year-old or a 12-year-old or something, but now you find yourself as an 18-year-old or a 25-year-old or a 35-year-old or a 65-year-old. And you, some of those ideas of, that you had as a kid are breaking down. Maybe, sometimes it's called deconstruction. And one of the things that I would like to say is that if an inexplicable thought can be a way that God can reach us, maybe that's what God is doing in your life. As he breaks down those different beliefs that you had as a child or that you had earlier in your life, which were good then, but they're just not sufficient now. And he's actually not calling you away from him, but to deeper communion with him, into something closer with him. So an inexplicable thought can be a star for us. The third thing is inexplicable trouble. I mentioned Tim Keller. I'm stealing this list from him. He's a pastor in New York for many years, and he's like one of my heroes. Uh, just a great guy. But a couple years ago, he got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And it's probably terminal. And I want to just read you a quote from a recent interview of what he said. This diagnosis has shown my wife and I that at a pretty deep level, we still believed that it was because of our wisdom and skill and goodness that God was giving us a good life. We would never have said that. We would never have agreed to it consciously, and we would never have agreed to anyone else saying that. That if you live your life right and read your Bible and you pray and try hard to live like Jesus, give you a good life. And yet we realized once cancer came, we were believing that at some level. See, an inexplicable trouble was introduced into his life. So he says, the cancer has asked us to dig deep into our hearts one more time and ask, do we believe that God really loves and blesses us by his grace? An inexplicable trouble introduced into his life that doesn't pull him away from God, but pulls him closer. And I can say from my own cancer journey, there's definitely some desire to yell at God and wonder why is this happening. But it's also a place, an inexplicable trouble in our lives that can draw us closer to God. That can be a rising star, an invitation to Jesus. The next one, an inexplicable emptiness. Uh, one of my favorite filmmakers, is, her name is Sofia Coppola. She's made uh, a bunch of great movies. You may know the one on the left, Lost in Translation. That was uh, one of her biggest ones. I actually watched it again over Christmas. And boy, uh, the first time I watched it, it was amazing. And it was uh, amazing again. But she's fantastic at talking about this idea of emptiness in our modern society, of like loneliness and emptiness. If you've watched Lost in Translation, it's uh, uh, Bill Murray and um, Scarlett Johansson, these two characters who are in Tokyo doing really well, but just severely lonely, severely empty. But her movie, I think, that, that touches on this in the most straightforward way is actually this one on the right. It's not very well known, but it's called Somewhere. And in it, the, there's an actor, uh, Stephen Dorff. He plays an actor, and he is an actor. And uh, he's just made it to the top of the chain. He's just become famous. He's kind of reached the top of where he's wanted to be his whole life. And it just chronicles how empty his life is the entire time. At the very end, there's this beautiful scene. Sofia Coppola, at the end of her films, she often doesn't have dialogue. She just has uh, music and then a shot. And it's the shot of him driving this beautiful Porsche that he has all around LA. So first he's driving in and around the city. Then he moves out onto the freeway. And in, his Porsche just stands out. And it's moving ahead and in front of all these other cars, kind of typifying this, this race that he's been in to get ahead. But then he walks out onto the, or drives out onto this rural road. He parks on the side of the road. He shuts the ignition off, leaves the keys in his car, and just starts walking down the road. And this is the end. I'm just talking about this desire for something new, something different, a desire to be somewhere else rather than where he is. And this, even though he's at the very top of the food chain, 
in his uh, job and in his work and in society, but he's just empty. And this profound emptiness, I think, can be an invitation. It can be a rising star, an opportunity for us to double down and, and come and hear the invitation to Jesus in a new way. So the last one is an inexplicable fullness. Uh, when um, Sarah and I had the privilege of going to Denmark a few years ago, and we were introduced to this woman. Her name is uh, Charlotte Rorth. I'm not sure that I'm actually saying her name correctly, but my Danish is very bad. Um, but she was an atheist, uh, an atheist journalist, and she took a trip to El Salvador, and she sat down in a chapel, not searching for God in any way, shape, or form. But here's what she says. She sat down in there, and she said, I couldn't move. I thought I was hit by a stroke as I felt completely paralyzed, but there was also an overwhelming sense of peace and joy. When my guide, Andrea, entered the chapel, he said, wow, Charlotte, how come you have this light around you? You're glowing. So she had this experience of fullness as she sat in this chapel. Then she went back home to Denmark, and she was walking her dog in the forest, and she said this, out of the blue, a beam of light touched my head, went right through my body, and projected me to another world. I immediately knew it was something like the presence of God, and I never felt so unconditionally loved as in that moment. This inexplicable fullness enters into her life and calls her into something bigger and deeper. I don't know about you, but I've, I've experienced inexplicable empathy. Also these moments of fullness. One of the places I is at the top of the chief. When you climb up there, especially if it's not a busy day, if it's a, it's a busy day, it's just inexplicable, period, and you're just trying not to get pushed by some kid off the, off the cliff face. But when it's quiet, and it's a beautiful, clear day, and you just look down, there's this feeling of being part of just something bigger, this, this sense of fullness that's really hard to put words to. And this moment might be an invitation from God into something deeper. So all of these things may be shooting stars for us. So the, the last question is, how do we need to respond to this invitation? How do we respond to the invitation of God? If he's always inviting the insider or the outsider in, if he's speaking to us through all these different circumstances to, in our lives and inviting us into something deeper, maybe it's for the first time or maybe it's for the 500th time he's inviting us in, how do we actually respond to this invitation? Four things I want to point out from this passage. The first is that you have to pay attention. You have to pay attention. See, the Magi had to be paying attention in order to see the star and notice its movement. And you might say, well, like, if there's this huge, crazy star in the sky, like, of course, I would see it and, like, I would follow too. But commentators actually agree that this was a, probably a really small star. We get the idea from the pageants, you know, with a kid carrying in this massive star, that this star was probably something really big, but commentators say it wasn't. And the reason is because no other characters in the story refer to the star. You know, when the Magi show up to see uh, into Jerusalem, they're like, yeah, we saw the star. It's not like King Herod's like, oh, yeah, the star. We've been wondering, like, what that is. You know, Methuselah here thought it was a UFO. Yaakov, you know, he thought it was a helicopter. We had no clue. Thanks for letting us know. No, nobody else sees the star because they're not paying attention. What about you? What about us? Are we taking the time to see the invitations that God has for us, the, the rising stars in our lives? And one of the best practices uh, for me in doing this, I would say I'm a fairly obtuse person when it comes to things like this. So one of the most helpful practices for me that I've started to do is called the prayer of examine. There's lots of different ways of doing it, but the basic idea is where you take a moment in your day, the end of the day is really helpful, and you just review your day. You just look back. Say, God, where have you been present that maybe I didn't notice? 
Where were you trying to send shooting stars into my life that I just hadn't taken the time to pay attention to? Just taking the time to review your day and look over that to pay attention to what God may be doing in your life. So the first thing we need to do is pay attention. The second is that we need to be open to God's activity in the world. So the Magi were heretics, but they got one thing right. This is the way that they looked at the world. Like most ancient societies, they thought that the sky was a firm metal dome. You might hear the word firmament or remember the word firmament from the Bible. This is the idea that up there, you can see kind of where it says the waters above, where it says, or rakia and firmament right there, that's talking about a big metal dome. And so for them, the sky was closed. It was actually a hard thing somewhere up there. So the, the sky was closed, but they were open to the work of the transcendent in their lives. They were open to the work of God. So the sky was closed, but they were open to the work of God in their lives. But we've flipped this idea today. So we believe that the sky is open. This is what we think of when we think of the sky, that these are you know, gas balls millions and millions of miles away that are burning, very, very distant. So we have a very open view of the world. But the problem is that we've closed ourselves off to the activity of the transcendent in the world. We've despiritualized the entire world. And so when we have inexplicable people or thoughts or emptiness, it's pretty unlikely that we think that that's God trying to get a hold of us. So we've built something like this red circle here around, uh, around our world where we, we've cut ourselves off from the realm of God and cut ourselves off from this idea of the three-tiered universe that they had in, in, uh, back in the time where Matthew was being written. And the problem here isn't science. I want to be really clear about this. I'm not like trying to tell you that the earth is flat and that there's actually a dome up there and that there's these, you know, sea monsters down below uh, our world. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm saying that the problem is that we despiritualize the world. So it's very hard for us to hear God in these invitations that he's making. Most of us would have an inexplicable person or an inexplicable thought or an inexplicable emptiness, and we might say, like, well, that was weird not necessarily understanding that that might be a bid from God to get our attention. Novelist Essie Adun makes this point really well in the most uh, recent CBC Massey lectures, and they were just released this week on CBC Ideas podcast if you want to listen to them. If you're not familiar with her, she's a Scotiabank Giller Prize winner twice. She wrote the book Half-Blood Blues in 2011, and then the most recent book that she wrote is called Washington Black in 2018. The lectures that she gives are about, as you can see, they're going to be put printed in this book called Out of the Sun on Race and Storytelling. Uh, she's not a follower of Jesus as far as I know. But the second lecture that she gives is called Canada and the Art of Ghosts. And she talks about how ghost stories exist for everybody, whether you're spiritually open or closed, whether you're a person that's like the Magi back in the day, or whether you're more a person like us in the 21st century. They're, they're stories that shape us. They, they show us how the past shapes the present both personally and communally, and they connect us to a place and all the people who have come before us. That's the function of ghost stories. But she also makes a really interesting observation. She says that ghost stories seem to have a dominant place within cultures of people of color, specifically in Canada, Aboriginal cultures and black cultures. And she gives several possibilities about why this might be. But one of them is that the cultures, these cultures have an openness to the world that most of us don't have today. These cultures are open to something beyond what we can measure and what we can control. They're open to a place that only stories can reach. And they're open to a hope for justice that is, goes beyond this life. Many of these communities, she says, have people who have experienced injustice and then just died. And so these stories of ghosts actually give us a hope 
that there might be justice even after death. And they give us a whisper that human life is so powerful and exceptional that it might have a continuance and even populate a world just slightly beyond our own. And she says we can write these cultures off as traditional and just non-scientific, but to do that would be a form of colonialism to that community and their stories. And instead, it advocates that we should open ourselves up to their perspective and open ourselves up to the possibility of the spiritual. Not to ghost stories necessarily, but to a more profound and deep picture of what it means to be human, what it means to be connected to one another and connected to the land, and the idea that God might be inviting us to know him, even through the mundane and everyday life. And this is what the Bible advocates for. Let me read one passage for you, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour out speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. The same idea that God wants to invite us through stars, through the sky, through people, through thoughts, through everything, that God is making these continual bids and invitations for us to come to him if we're going to be open to the world, open to his work in the world, sorry. And again, I want to make the claim that this is not against science. This is not trying to go back to a place where we believe in a three-tiered universe. One of the best scientists in the world right now, his name is Francis Collins. He led the Human Genome Project uh, and sequencing the genome. And here's what he says. The lab is my cathedral. It's a perspective. When he goes in there and he looks through a microscope and he looks at whatever he's looking at, I don't know, I have an arts degree, so whatever you look at in a microscope, that he sees the hands of God. In fact, his book is called The Language of God, The Fingerprints of God in Doing His Work of Science. It's about a perspective that we're advocating for, an open for God to be working in the world. So we need to pay attention. We need to be open to God working in the world. And the third is that we need to learn to get on our camels. You know, the, the Magi could have seen the star. They could have noticed that it was shooting in the sky and that it signified something really important and said, boy, but, you know, it's just not a good time for me. So I don't know, it's Christmas. You know, I gotta bring the stuffing to my in-laws, got a lot of office parties to go to, so maybe we could just hang on and try to go later. But that's not what they do. Instead, they take the first step. They hop on their camels, they pack the things that they need for the journey, and they make the long journey to go meet Jesus. And this is a, a something for us, I think that's really important. And I would say this, especially for maybe my generation and younger, that we like to, um, get excited about things and not necessarily start them and hop in. And so for us, it's really important that we take that next step, and I just encourage you to do that, whatever it is. If God is making a bid for your attention, inviting you into something deeper, that you get on your camel for whatever that next step is. If you're someone who doesn't follow Jesus, like, first of all, you're doing great. You're here. I don't know why you're here, but awesome. Fantastic. And so take the next step. Maybe one of the things you could do is read through this Gospel of Matthew that we're reading through together. And the last thing I would encourage you to do is find somebody to talk to. This is uh, anal analogizing, but just like the, the wise men didn't go on the journey alone, don't go on the journey alone either. Bring some people into it who can talk with you through it and, and take this next step on the journey with Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus and you're feeling at this time, you know, maybe dry or far from God, it's hard to see these bids for attention that he's giving you. One of the things I would encourage you to do is go through our member check-in time and specifically notice rule of life. What are the ways that you're making time and space for God in your life? Because sometimes our rules can become ruts and we forget the practices that we're doing are just a means to an end. And so it's time for us to change up our practices 
in order to pay attention to God again, to open ourselves up to him in the world and to figure out what the next step is. So those are some things that I can encourage you to do to take the next step. So we need to pay attention, open ourselves up to God in the world, get on our camels, and then finally bring him our gifts. We all know the gifts that the wise men bring to Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And there's been, in my research in the past week, there's so much ink that's been spilled on like what exactly these gifts mean. And uh, that's helpful. But many of the commentators in, in trying to narrow down what exact, each exact gift means miss the echo of what's going on in the larger story of the Bible with these gifts. So in Genesis, at the very beginning of the story, we see that God wants to partner with us in cultivating the world. One of the first things that God does is he shines his light into darkness. And then he invites us as people to be part of that, to be fruitful and multiply and be opening up places, cultivating shalom and places for flourishing alongside of him. And the last couple of weeks, we looked at the promise that God has to Abraham, that he is to be blessed, to be a blessing to the rest of the world. He receives that from God, and then he, his family is going to be a light shining out to bless the rest of the world and inviting them into the story of God, inviting them to bring their gifts, inviting them to bring their cultures and their, their ethnicities and everything towards God. And with these storylines in, in mind, the prophet Isaiah comes around, and the people of God are in exile. This means that they're away from their home. Everything has seemed to go wrong, and these promises don't seem to be taking shape at all. And here's what he writes in Isaiah 60. Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord shines over you. For look, darkness will cover the earth, and a total darkness the people. This idea of a decreation that's happening. When God creates, he brings light into the world, but, but this dark force has come and brought darkness over all the people. But the Lord will shine over you, and his glory will appear over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to your shining brightness. So raise your eyes and look around. They all gather and come to you. Your sons will come from far away and your daughters on the hips of nursing mothers. Then you will see and be radiant. And your heart will tremble and rejoice because the riches of the sea will come, become yours. And the wealth of nations will come to you. Caravans of camels will cover your land. Young camels of Midian and Ephah, all of them will come from Sheba. And they will carry gold and frankincense and proclaim the praises of the Lord. This beautiful promise and prophecy that even though the people are in exile at the moment that he writes or speaks, that one day God will bring them home and the city will be rebuilt and God will be reigning and ruling in his holy place and the people will be filled with joy as the world comes to bring gifts so that we can work together in recreating this world of shalom. And how will we know that this is going to happen? Or how do we know that this is taking place? Three things. The light will shine over them. The glory of God will be seen. And the nation will arrive on camels bearing gifts. Matthew picks up on this passage in his story. That in Jesus, the exile has been reversed. And the prophecy is fulfilled that the star is seen. That the nations come and they bring their gifts to the glory of God. This tiny baby, Jesus, the long-awaited king who will carry forward this promise be a new light that shines in the darkness, bring hope and invite us into his work in the world. And so he is saying to us, Matthew is trying to say to us that each of us is invited to bring our gifts to God. The gifts are the best of yourself and the best of your culture, 
Myrrh and frankincense, interestingly, are resin from trees in Arabia, which is probably where these wise men came from. They're cultural products. They're ways that people work together to cultivate the world and create culture. So God is asking us to bring our cultures to him, the best of our cultures to him, bring the best of ourselves to him, which is what the wise men do as they come, as they take their time and their treasure and they take the long journey to come towards Jesus. So to bring the best of ourselves and to represent them to God as a way of saying that I acknowledge you as my king, that I bring you my worship and my allegiance, and I receive this invite to be part of your story once again. I want to live as a fulfillment of this prophecy, as someone who comes from a nation outside and brings the best of what I have to your throne, to be remade into a person who can partner with God to do this work in the world, to be fruitful and multiply, to create a place of fulfillment, to bring light into darkness, to bring shalom and bless the world. Let's close in prayer. God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for what it invites us into. I pray for each of us, no matter where we're at, if it's the first time that we are taking a step towards you or, like I said, the hundredth time, that you would help us to see that uh, we are invited. Give us eyes and ears to see where you're making invitations to us. And then I pray for us, whatever the next step is, that we would receive this invitation, this bid that you're making on our lives, to join you in your story of recreating the world. So as we enter into a time of response, uh, I pray that your spirit would speak to us. Would you help us to join with you and with uh, the world in worship? as we sing together praises to you. You are a God who has, in Christ, gone in the darkness. And I pray for each of us that have places of darkness in our lives that we're um, worried about, that we're thinking about, that we feel like keep us far from you. Would you shine your light into the darkness of our, our lives and our communities, we pray. As we sing, as we uh, give, as we take communion together, as we do all of these things, I ask that you would make yourself real to us. Help us to bring our treasures to you that we would join with you in, and with one another in worship and in allegiance, and that we would be part of, of this um, work in the world that you're doing to bring blessing to the world. So we pray these things together in Christ's name. Amen.